Welcome, Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 9-22-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service this evening. Let's have a, a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have. Uh, we, we're grateful that we could carve out this time in our lives to focus our attention on you. We pray as we open your word that you will give us wisdom. Pray that we will approach with humility so, so that we can come to know you better. And we pray for those in Word is Truth, wherever they may be. We pray for their welfare, their safety, especially Dwight, who has fallen off of his bicycle. And we pray for uh, that he will come to understand how to ride that bicycle with safety. Also, Father, we're praying for those who are also in pain and suffering, and that would include Dave's daughter. We're praying for Kenny. Um, these are some of the names that come to mind. Father, you know the hearts, who's on our heart as well, that I may have missed. Oh, uh, also, Dwight, Dwight's uncle has passed. So, Father, we're praying for bereavement and comfort for their family. And we're also praying for those who have the same mind in the world, who are striving toward coming to know you better and the Father's eternal purpose. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Amen. So our normal course of study is in Romans chapter 9. Uh, today we are on verses 25 and 26, which we will get to. Um, but we have some opportunity for Q&A. We'll pause for just a minute to see if there are any thoughts, questions, ideas out there uh, that we could cover. If not, we will head into Romans, but I will pause. it's quiet so I guess that would mean that we are ready to head into Romans all right so it is so you have notes and uh, we're going to head to there to review stand by all right so in your notes we have uh, two verses that we're going to try to cover tonight, verses 25 and 26 of Romans 9. It reads, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Uh, if you have been following along, you know the challenge God has, has with Israel and is using the Apostle Paul in fantastic ways to speak to them. Can he present the case for his hidden agenda to those who were previously called for a different purpose in the plan? Yes, he can and will do so using language they understand. Not only will God, God's defense of his choices resonate with Israel, but it is also rewarding for everyone um, to, to see God's loving treatment of those called to Israel. So I think there's a dual purpose here in understanding how this all works out. And I think it's, when I say it's rewarding, I'm pretty sure as we cover this, even though we may not have a Jewish background, our prayer is that we will come to understand just how God deals with Israel and especially their objections to the mystery, which was hidden in, in God. And no one knew about it, but then he began to reveal it. So we know Israel objected to that. And so what we want to do here is 
try to understand the reasoning. So we've been doing that for the whole, uh, you know, we've been following along with the context. So let's dig into, we got a lot of uh, thoughts to cover, so we'll dig right in. So point one is, as he says in Hosea. So we have some points to think about. We have already seen God demonstrate his sovereignty through the language of accommodation to his chosen nation, Israel. And how do we already see it? Well, we saw it in the context already. How God called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and how he dealt with Pharaoh. Uh, all of those things we saw. Uh, and in each case, each uh, verse that dealt with the formation of the nation Israel, we saw God exercising his right of sovereignty <clears throat> to form the nation in a manner that was consistent with his own sovereignty. So that is what is what what was important to God, that he have it just the way he wanted it. And we do see that uh, even Abraham or uh, Isaac, all of them, they tried to do it in other ways. We saw the variations of their volition, trying to, uh, you know, in, in distrust of, of God's sovereign will and saying, well, God must want this or God must want that. Uh, we saw Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah, work it out together and finally come to believe and had faith, strong and strong faith, as, as it says. But it took time. It took some changes in their thinking before they eventually did develop trust in God. And then we saw Isaac, how um, he, you know, the before the boys were born, he, we're talking Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the one who was chosen, even though um, Esau was the eldest. In other words, he was the firstborn. Uh, God chose Jacob to carry the birthright. And really what he was doing was forming the nation Israel. The names we know are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are very clear names that uh, God used, uh, patriarchs, to form the nation Israel. So Jacob was the one chosen, and Jacob became Israel. And then we saw Pharaoh's um, resistance to God creating or having Israel uh, be let go so that they can become a nation before God. So moving forward in our notes, it's a reminder, God gave those who would object to his calling the church, the reminder that uh, his sovereignty was created, uh, that created the nation Israel, the very ground on which they stand. So imagine that God is saying, if I'm not sovereign, then you uh, don't have a right to stand as the nation Israel because I created you with my sovereignty, with the free choice that I wanted to make. If I don't have that, you are questioning the very grounds you stand on. If I don't have the right to call the church, then how is it that I had the right to call Israel? God is saying, let me take care of my eternal purpose. And you um, don't have the right to question my choices. Now, God says that because it's true, but ultimately, he gives explanations for why he feels he is sovereignly um, disposed to do it his way. He, he gives explanation. He's transparent to a degree because we don't really know why God chose us. When I say he chose us, I know he wants to bring many sons into glory. I'm, I know all of that, but I mean, we don't know why we are here at this particular time. Why me? We could ask that question. Why not someone else? How did I end up here? God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. And I can't say I know why he chose me. I mean, I could say, generally speaking, yeah, he chose me to be his son. But why me? Why? 
I can't answer that question. That has to do with God's sovereignty. We could even say, well, why did God choose uh, Jacob over Esau? It's not, it didn't have anything to do with whether the twins would do any good or bad, right? Well, it had nothing to do with that. Why did he do it? It was God's sovereign choice. He says that to let you know it's his call, not yours. So the fact that I'm here is not because I did something special. Uh, God didn't look down the corridors of history and say, Doug is going to be a really good believer, so I'm going to make sure I put him in the church age. He he, he, we don't, if it was that, we don't know that that is the case because that is unknown territory. So that's, that's the thing. And, and so Israel objected to God calling the church, but they were also need to be reminded that they are objecting to the very ground on which they stand. Point C. He showed his mighty power to those who oppose him. And this is why we talked about Pharaoh and his army, how they were drowned in the Red Sea. And um, this is typically um, how God uh, displayed his power. He used Pharaoh in this way and Pharaoh's resistance to demonstrate who he was. People got to know who the God of Israel is through the resistance that Pharaoh posed. So God, in his wisdom, used that resistance for his own good. And this, uh, no one can blame God for, resist, for the resistance. That was all on Pharaoh's part. Pharaoh was destined to resist God. That was his own choice. God just knew it. So he took advantage of it. So, But just remember, it's not just pointing out Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I'm going to make you, you know, um, an example out of you. It was more than that. Pharaoh was uh, standing in the way of God fulfilling his purpose in creating the nation Israel. He would not let the people go so that they could go and become a nation before God. So that was part of God's plan. God dealt with Pharaoh because it was, he was, Pharaoh was trying to block God's eternal purpose. Now, guess what? When you look at it, the long of this, you see Israel objecting to God calling the church, which is part of God's eternal, it is God's eternal purpose. And uh, it is the same thing that Pharaoh was in the position of doing, which was saying to God, no, I won't let your people go. And Israel is saying basically the same thing. They're saying, no, the church is not called. We are the cho chosen people. Can't change now and call Jews and Gentiles in one body and uh, disregard the Mosaic law and so forth. Can't do that. That's what Israel is saying to God right now, even to this day. So watch out, I should say. Because God is going to, he's going to fulfill his eternal purpose, whether you disagree or agree with it. That's what we know from Pharaoh. So I would say to Israel, be warned. So let's continue. Point D in our notes. Now, he goes to the Old Testament book, Hosea, to show more of his defense of his sovereignty. So uh, why, going, why does he go to Hosea? Uh, there's a story there that he wants to bring out that he feels Israel needs to hear. Now, let's just cl make, clarify. He's not going to Hosea because the, you know, the, the church is somehow found in those pages. It's not. Israel is in those pages, and the history of Israel is there, some history, and his goal, his objective here is to show Israel something about what their future will be and what's going on in their lives, right? And we're going to get to that in more detail, but obviously there's an analogy, and it does relate to what God, what is happening to Israel now. Obviously, uh, we, we talked about the mystery, 
but we'll hopefully can we can develop why the apostle uses Hosea as an example to help Israel understand uh, about what's going on now. Because remember, they were objecting. Point E. So as we go to Hosea, Hosea we should know that the, this analogy does not deal with Gentiles. So it deals with wayward Israel. So I just wanted to clarify, <clears throat> it's not like in this analogy, God says, hey, accept the Gentiles. <laughs> That's not it. We're only dealing with Jews here. And we're going to show, or at least Paul is making the point that Hosea uh, is an illustration of God dealing with his people, Israel. And we're going to see that that is the case. And so that it's not related to the church, per se, from that standpoint. So we'll get to it. So point two, let's get to the second part. I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Okay, so let's look at that phrase. And the first phrase, really, Paul is quoting... In, in Hosea 2, 23, to illustrate Israel's past history related to their unfaithfulness and God's discipline. So basically it goes back to the story of Hosea. And to understand why Paul would use it, you'd probably need to take some time to look at the story of Hosea. Now, Hosea has quite a few chapters and uh, But I would say we could summarize the story, and that's what I'm going to do for you. But if you would like to read through Hosea, you could. I mean, it's I read a lot of Old Testament history, <laughs> a lot of cross-referencing, but I thought, okay, well, what's relative to our study? And Paul's using it. We need to understand how Paul uses it. So that we can understand what what is the purpose of him going to Hosea, so that he can help the Jews who are uh, rejecting the mystery understand. So, point B: the story of Hosea can be summed up by an illustration where God tells Hosea to go and marry Gomer, and it details her unfaithfulness to Hosea. So this is the quote in Hosea 1, 2. It's point C. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So already in Hosea 1, 2, First, it comes out in one one and talks about the setting of where and when Hosea lived and what kings were uh, in play at the time. But then verse 2 goes right to this. It says, here is how I'm going to illustrate uh, the unfaithfulness that Israel has to the Lord. And he's telling Hosea. Now, there's a lot of... Uh, conjecture about what's going on here among commentators. I will just let you know. But I think there's some prevailing thought that makes sense. And that is, even some of them are saying, oh, well, this is really not a real story. This is just an allegory, you know, allegorical story. But it doesn't appear that way. But God is directing it. It almost, uh, I could see why people would say that because of some of the names that are used and so forth. But, and we'll get to that. But I believe these are actual events. Uh, Hosea is told to go marry this woman. Now, some are saying, from the words that are used, that the woman was not necessarily a prostitute or promiscuous, uh, but um, she became this. 
this is what some are saying. And for some reasons and that I sort of make sense. It does make sense. Either way, what ends up happening is Hosea marries this woman and she is an adulterer. She becomes an adulterous wife. And um, this story from point C is where we are, is an illustration or what we could say, we could say it's a metaphor, but it's a real life metaphor that God sends Hosea through in order to illustrate how Israel is being unfaithful to him. And, and you could say uh, there is like a marriage contract between God and Israel. And in fact, we, we talked about how, we don't say a marriage contract, but we would say a covenant that they both entered into, God and Israel. And one of the things that I've always talked about with the Sabbath, which is the seventh day Sabbath, is that God uses the Sabbath as like a wedding ring. It's given to his, only his people as a holy day between them and the Lord. And so it's like God, not only did he covenant with Israel, but he gave them his Sabbaths. So it's a sign, God said, this is in Ezekiel, it's a sign between God and Israel that he is the Lord that sanctifies them. So you can read that, you think, well, gosh, that has to be very special for the nation Israel the Sabbath. But, you know, I know I came from a denomination, Seventh-day Adventists, who believe that the Sabbath should be imposed upon everybody. But then, how is it a special sign between God and the nation Israel if it's, it doesn't depend on any nation? Any nation, it's not special at all anymore. Anyway, you can read that. But, in essence, we have this... Um, where God is saying, Israel is unfaithful to me. They're going around and committing adultery with, you know, other religions, other uh, uh, denominations, or we could say that Israel went out and uh, tried to adopt some of the pagan religions. They consorted with the pagans and all of... Uh, uh, some of the pagan gods they were worshiping, it got very bad to the point where God felt that he needed a visible illustration through the prophet Hosea to show Israel what they were like. And it was they were like a promiscuous woman going out, having affairs, and, uh, and we're going to see what God does as a result of this. So let's continue on in our notes, point number two, and we're point D now. So point D just says, then after much turbulence and three children, they are again restored. So, so God's saying, he takes you through this whole thing. He, he states the whole thing in chapter one. Chapter one is like a summary of everything he's going to talk about. Then in chapter two through so on and so on, he begins to tell you some of the details, some of the gory details of how it all unfolds. But chapter one is sort of like an overview, and which kind of helps us understand Hosea a little bit. When you go back and read it for yourself, you'll be able to see that, that that's how it works out. So there's a lot of turbulence, and there are three children, but then at the end of it, you'll see that... Uh, that Hosea, again, restores his wife. He forgives her, and they get back together. And this also depicts God uh, restoring Israel uh, from a disciplined standpoint or sta status. And uh, because, because of Israel's uh, uh, unfaithfulness, their adultery, what we call spiritual adultery, then... Um, God had to discipline them. And to discipline them, uh, it, when he disciplined them, it is almost akin to God saying, you are not my people. Uh, or 
you're the you're you're the one I do not love. So I just want to illustrate what happens through this. So let's look at um, point E. Yet the Israelites will will be like the sand on the seashore. This is the restoration, and this is right in chapter one. Remember all the stuff that goes on. Right in chapter one, this is a quote. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. See, so so when he says you are not my people, he's really referring to uh, the discipline, how he had to turn his back on Israel, let them be conquered by the Assyrians and all these and by all of the things that were happening to Israel was God allowing Israel to be disciplined. And he's basically saying, you are not my people. But then you see in the same sentence, he says, they will be called children of the living God. So he goes through this whole thing to show how, um, uh, it, how Israel is eventually restored. But he does deal pretty harshly with Israel. Remember, there are two kingdoms at this point. There is Judah, which is in the, the southern kingdom, uh, and then there is Israel, which is the northern kingdom. So if you look at Hosea 1, let's look at 10 and 11. I think, I, don't, I didn't quote 11, so I want to look at that. Stand by. We'll get to Hosea. There it is. Hosea chapter 1. We're talking about the restoration. So let's look at it, verse 10 and 11. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. And watch 11. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and call, and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So what happens is Israel is literally destroyed, but there is a remnant that is left, and that remnant end up joining with the southern kingdom, which is um, of, of, uh, Israel, of uh, the land. So the southern kingdom is called Judah, but they, and they eventually uh, are... Uh, brought together under one head, and that is David. So uh, this is how it all worked out. And God is prophesying how terrible it was before all this happened and what he ended up having to do to Israel. It is terrible. There was a slaughter. You could read more about it when you have the time. But that is not, we don't have to go into the greatest of detail to understand why it's here. So, so you are... He said, he said to them, you are not my people, but they will be called children of the living God. So point F, each of the children's names of the marriage are descriptive of God's judgment. So let's look at that really quick in Hosea 1, the first chapter, verses 4, 6, and 9. Let's look, let's look at it. Hosea 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. See, when he says he will put an end to the kingdom of Israel, remember I gave you the synopsis of how that happens, where God does, in fact, put an end to the kingdom of Israel the king and everyone and and then he eventually draws them together through David through Judah we saw that later in the chapter so and then 4 that was verse 4 so the first child was named Jezreel and and that's what it meant it meant how it, there was going to be a massacre at Jezreel and and it was horrible and then verse 6 says Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the, then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Rumrah, Rumah, which means not loved. See, to the one he says he didn't love, and then he turns around and says, you are children of the living God. So because, why? Because that one's name, that's what it meant, not loved. 
because remember we're dealing with how Israel went and committed spiritual adultery and how God responded. He says, you're, you're not, I'm going and this, she had these kids, but she was out having kids by other men. And Hosea was the husband. And so God told Hosea, call, him, call the, this one's name this, and call the second one's name this, and we're going to see where he calls the third one's name in verse 9. Then the Lord said, he had the third one, right? Or we could go to eight. After she had weaned, lo, rumah, rumaha, I've been saying that wrong, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him lo, ami, which means not my people. So in other words, these are, these are the tough years of Hosea. Can you imagine the angst and the, the the, the attitude that Hosea went had, which was probably devastating for him to go through this and have three children, which are children of uh, Gomer, who was out uh, committing adultery. And this is what God told him to do, marry this woman. And he knew all these things were going to happen, but he wanted Hosea to go through this. Often prophets have to... God does call upon them to illustrate things that happen are going to happen to Israel. And that's what uh, he's doing here with Hosea. So, uh, yet the Israel, but even though all of that, verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. Let's go back to the notes. We'll continue this thought. So, point number three in our notes is in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So this is, this is the last phrase. To remember, the second phrase was, uh, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. This is in two and three, we're seeing, you are not, he will, he, he's rectifying it by saying, in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So let's look at some of the thoughts here. I think we already have the understanding. We'll just have to put it together. First point is, in this analogy, Israel is being disciplined for their greatest sin of rejecting and crucifying their Messiah. So think about it. Whatever was going on with Israel in the time of Hosea, <laughs> it was bad. And it was so bad, God had to deal very sternly with them. Even to the point where he talks about a massacre and tremendous loss of life. And so it is, we are at another point in Israel's history when they crucified Christ. And it's depicted in a couple of verses. I want to read these couple of verses in John 1.11. And uh, 19.6, let's look at them, stand by. So John chapter 1, verse 11, and it just simply says this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They literally rejected him. And this is, Jesus was a Jew, he was the Messiah, uh, to the Jewish nation and to the world, but especially to his own people. I mean, it was prophesied in the Mosaic Law and the prophets that Christ would come, that he would do all these things, and that they were to put their trust in him, and on and on. And they basically said, no, you are not the Christ. We are going to continue to look for another, and you are an imposter. And then in John 19 and verse 6, we see their attitude uh, when, when they finally did get Christ uh, and arrested him and brought him before Pilate, Pilate did everything he could to free Christ because he couldn't find anything wrong. He, there was no, uh, nothing worthy of death that uh, he could find. Uh, so he said, wanted to set Christ free. It was his mind to, yeah, I'll set him free. So I'm going to read, I know we're looking at six, but I'll read five. 
when Jesus came out wearing, this is, this is even after several times of trying to persuade the Jews to let Christ go, but Jews were insistent that no. So when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. In other words, look, I disciplined him. I've flogged him. I've done all this. And so, but there's nothing worthy of death for, you know, I punished him for nothing, really. This shows the weak and vacillating nature of Pilate. He should have just stood his ground, said, if there's nothing wrong here, I should have just let Christ free. Well, why are you going to punish him? For what? But Pilate was weak. And look at verse 6. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. I'm reading more, but you know, I, I hopefully you will you will read, you understand that no matter what, they crucified. They did not only reject their Messiah, they crucified him as well. This is, this is something that there's no going back on. This is the most grievous sin. I mean, to reject Christ is uh, you will not see life and the wrath of God will remain on you. Well, for these people, who not only rejected him, but had him crucified, God, and that is one of the most horrible, grievous sins you could possibly have taken part in. And yet, that's what these people did. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Back to our notes here. So, uh, let's look at this. Stand by. So, so here, we're in point B now, 3B. Israel is under judgment. This is what's going on right now. Israel is under judgment. But God now suspends Israel and calls the church. And I call this plan A because a lot of times people look at this as um, that God really had the plan for Israel but when Israel did not respond and they rejected Christ and crucified him, God says, you know, I'm so mad at you. I'm going to turn and create another plan, plan, a plan B. This is how people, some people look at this. And they said, well, then God created the church. But that is not it at all. God planned the church before time began. When we say in 1 Corinthians 2.7 that this wisdom was destined for our glory before time began. So we're talking about a wisdom before creation. Time is when creation began. Before time began is, is before creation. So what was God thinking about before he created all things? Well, he was thinking about what he wanted out of creation. What was the plan? And, and so we are a part of that. And it, and it says that this is wisdom for us. There was wisdom going on before God created all things. And that wisdom belongs to us. That's a part of our heritage. So the judgment of Israel was known by God. In fact, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. God says that they were seeing they would not see, hearing they would not hear. All that was in Isaiah. He prophesied about this event that the Jews would re reject their Messiah. So that's not a mystery, but God did hide the mystery. And the mystery is revealed now, but it was not plan B. I just wanted to make sure it is plan A. God, this is what he wanted to do all along. He just knew how history would unfold, and he knew that it was the proper time to reveal the church. So right now, as we are being, as God is calling out us, the, uh, he's calling out those many sons in the glory, 
Israel is suspended. But before they were suspended, they were under discipline. And this is part of um, the plan as well. Not the eternal purpose. God knew all this from, um, from even Old Testament times. Point C, God deals with the church. But as far as Israel is concerned, uh, it should be, shouldn't be nice hey there, enemies. I think we got to the T there. It should be they. And then this is a quote from a Romans eleven twenty eight. So God, God deals with the church, but as far as Israel is concerned, it should be they are enemies for your sake. But as far as the as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. That's Romans eleven twenty eight. So think about what that says and think about the whole story of Hosea. Isn't that what's going on with Israel as we speak? Israel is... You, those who were not loved, he said, they're going to be called the children of the living God. And who's he talking? How is he seeing this? He's saying that, well, yeah, right now Israel's under discipline. I basically turned my back on them. They're being disciplined. I suspended Israel. But on the other hand, uh, the church is now being called into glory, right? Calling out many sons into glory. Now, when you assess all of this, it is literally God is saying that Israel, they're enemies for your sake. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies. How can, how can Israel be uh, hating the gospel, crucified Christ, and then this statement is about them. It says, but as far as the election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. And I didn't include verse 29, but verse 29 in Romans 11 says, because God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God will not revoke what he has already promised Israel. So what does that to say? Israel has a future. God will restore Israel. He will definitely restore Israel. So even though it looks bad right now, and he, just like with Hosea, when Gomer went out and did all that, looked bad, and they were under tremendous discipline as a result of it. It's like he says in verse 11, Israel will be restored. They'll be like the sands of the seashore. You will not even be able to count them. They'll be so numerous. So that's the thought. God is literally showing you the same thing that's happening now happened in Hosea. But we're talking about to the Jews. That's who we're talking about. So point D, after the church was, is removed, and this is what we, ca we call the rapture of the church or the catching away of those who are in the church, God then turns to restore Israel. And literally, this is verses 11, Romans 11, 26 and 27. Here's what it says. It says, uh, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Right? This is after the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Right? This is literally after the church is removed. And in this way, all Israel will be saved or delivered, as it is written. And here it is, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So notice, just like um, he did when Jacob became Israel, where God wrestled with Jacob in the wilderness. And uh, remember, he touched his thigh. In other words, he caused Jacob to limp for the rest of his life. Jacob was in a struggle, a struggle with God. And um, after the struggle was over, Jacob, God said, I'm, you're going to now be named, your name will now be changed to Israel. And we know Jacob had the sons and that's where the tribes come from and so forth. So he's going to turn godlessness away from Jacob. Now, he did all that because Jacob was, he's using that term, uh, to talk about Jacob, because Jacob was really, he was a slickster. 
his name actually meant chiseler, somebody who is deceptive and deceiving. Uh, he grabbed Esau's heel. He was a supplanter. These are, these are names that Jacob had, when, and his character actually proved that when he took part in the deception to, uh, to take the birthright from Esau. And Jacob was, you know, he, God had to deal with him, and he did in the wilderness. And that, where it talks about Jacob wrestled with God. In the same way, God's going to take, Israel's not coming. When, when Israel's restored, godlessness will need to be removed from them. In other words, they will need to come and accept Christ. And that's what it says in um, Revelation 12 at the end. It talks about the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The woman is Israel. The remnant of her seed, in other words, those who are left and who keep the commandments of God and they're back under the law and have the faith in Christ and Jesus. So, so these, that's what they're going to, godlessness is going to have to go. They're going to have to believe in Christ and all of that will happen in the tribulation. So is all of Israel will be restored perfectly, just like it says in, uh, in these verses, right? After uh, the church is removed. And so we're going to, lastly, we're going to uh, point, point out to note, God reassures Israel that they have a future. This is a part of it. Now, that's one of the things that Israel needs to know. Uh, and we've talked about this uh, uh, when we were going through uh, some of the context of Romans 9, is that Israel thinks that they have, you know, they're looking at the glory of Israel, and every time Moses is read, a veil is over their hearts, and uh, they can't see anything past Israel. And really... It is not that God has rejected Israel. God is calling out the church. And in, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So if, if a person is, has a, the culture and the background of Israel, that God hasn't left them out of anything. He has called them into the church. So right now, anybody who is a Jew can believe in Christ, and they are automatically baptized into the body of Christ. It is, God has not left the Jew behind by no stretch. I mean, the Jew can believe, and they'll have salvation, eternal life, immediately by, upon believing in the name of God's only begotten Son. So there's, they're not lacking in any way, but in their view, oh God, you're you're punishing us. You mean we're not the call? The church is called? We're not? What's going to happen to us? Woe is us. No, not at all. So God is reassuring Israel using the story of Hosea. Not to worry, God is saying. I won't forget you. I love you. And I won't turn my back on you. Israel has a future. And God has not abandoned Israel, but is disciplining them just like he did in their history. And they, for this sin of rejecting Christ, it is the most grievous. So not only did they reject Christ, but they refused to accept the sovereignty of God in choosing the church. So on, on the one hand, rejecting Christ, well, that was bad enough because if anybody ought to have known who Christ was, it was the people to whom uh, he came. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And then secondarily, uh, God performed many signs, wonders, and miracles, demonstrating the direction that he was traveling. So there was no, should have been no question about which way God is going. And then God is calling out many sons in the glory. And who are those sons? Wow. They, are, they come from uh, Jews and Gentiles. There is no difference. We are one in Christ. And we are members together of one body and so forth. This is 
according to the promise in Christ Jesus. So God has not abandoned Israel. Israel is not to feel like, oh, God turning to the church is somehow an indictment against them. It is not. It is God's eternal purpose. And yes, uh, God did discipline Israel. And what I would say with a warning, Israel needs to be very careful in this regard because remember what happened to Pharaoh when Pharaoh tried to stand in the way of God's eternal purpose in creating Israel, which is a component part of the eternal purpose uh, of calling out the many sons in the glory. Look what happened to Pharaoh and his army. So with that, I would just say um, we're going to continue with another analogy of what Israel needs to be mindful of as we go into Isaiah and Paul's uh, reasoning from there. So with this, we're going to conclude this part. Uh, I'm sure if, well, if there are questions, we can certainly discuss them in our Q&A or we can take that up. But with this, we will take our, our, we'll close. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy towards us. As we watch how you have dealt with Israel, we know not only that you, uh, you, re you respect who they are, even though they cross the line in many ways, but you still are faithful to them. You, you still have a history and a future that will include Israel, no matter what, for all that they have done, you will still be faithful to these people in the covenant that you created with them. So we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, not only to them, but to us. We can trust you. We know that you, you are honorable. And when you speak, your words matter. And we can put our trust in, and we can hang our life on your words. We thank you for giving us, preserving the word for us, which came from antiquity many, many years ago, all the way to 2021, where we stand. So we pray for each person that is a part of our group and not only our group, but anybody who will listen to these messages, we pray that they will come to understand Romans 9 in a manner that is according to the context. And all of this, Father, we want to say thank you as, as we are seeing clearly uh, how Romans 9 fits into uh, your word and how it is important to us to understand. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.